As a young priest, Martin Luther had a quest for peace. He wanted peace with God. And, um, but this peace was blocked by his concept of the righteousness of God. When he thought of the righteousness of God, he saw this, this righteous, sinless God who hates sin and insists that every sin that I confess be confessed, that every sin that I commit, that I confess. And so Luther, uh, the, the church had told him that you have to do, make all your confessions, otherwise you're really in trouble. And so he would, he would think of all, uh, try to think of all of his sins. He would go to confession. And, uh, and he would confess his sins uh, to be absolved of them. And... Uh, he made it, you know, he, uh, he confessed so frequently, often daily, and for as long as six hours. You can imagine what his priest must have felt like. Well, every, every sin in order to be absolved was to be confessed. Therefore, uh, the soul must be searched and the memory ransacked and the motives probed. And as an aid to his confession, he would go to the seven deadly sins and he would go to the Ten Commandments and he would go through Scripture and he, everything that pointed out his sins, he would confess. He would repeat his confessions and, be, and, and to, to be sure uh, of including everything. He would review his entire life until the confessor grew so weary that he exclaimed, Man, God is not angry with you. You're angry with God. Don't you know that God commands you to hope? Luther's quest for hope began to dawn with the reading and the studying of the famous passage that is found in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. If you look in your Bibles for Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, I'll be leading you through various verses, so have your, have your tool handy, whether you turn pages or, or point uh, and touch with your finger, uh, whichever works for you. Uh, stay with me. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, where we read, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous <clears throat> will live by faith. This passage opened a new world to Martin Luther, coupled with Luther's growing understanding of Christ, which we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 
16 and following. There we read, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. <clears throat> the old has gone. The new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling uh, the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he, was, he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you in Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What great news. This, was, this opened a new world to, to Luther. He could, he could now see that there was an access, there was a, a, an avenue through which he could approach God without feeling that somehow he had to earn every merit to get into God's kingdom. This reconciliation is possible because of what we call justification by faith. Martin Luther called it the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. He called on pastors to take it back to their churches and, quote, beat into their heads continually. The Reformation saw untold numbers of believers across Europe go willingly to the flames, holding on to the reality that God is on our side, that in Jesus Christ we have everything that we need for salvation. It's good to remember believers who explored theology and not merely as academic exercises, but as a life and death endeavor. It is good for us to pause and remember the doctrines for which our forebearers in the faith died. And it's good to ask of these if these are the doctrines for which we are living on a daily basis. The declaration is this. Justification is the gracious act of God by which he declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to take this phrase by phrase. I'm going to say it. You will repeat it because that repetition is going to help this to just sort of stick in your mind. So I will read, uh, I will say it first. You will repeat it. Justification is the gracious act of God by which he declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Jesus Christ. This is 
unearned, my friends. This is unmerited favor. It's incredible. Let's break it down a little bit so that, so that we understand these phrases one at a time. Justification is the gracious act of God. No one is right before God, and absolutely no one can make themselves right before God. It is God alone who can make us right before Him. No amount of penance, no amount of regret, no amount of service or suffering can even the scales weighed down by our wanton rebellion against the holy and righteous God. We cannot achieve salvation by works. We can only receive it by faith as a free gift paid for and earned by Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. The second phrase, by which he declares a sinner righteous. Sinful man has no case before the righteous judge of the universe. By nature, we stand completely guilty before God. But he declares us righteous the moment we invite him to be our Redeemer and Lord. Let's not gloss over the fact we stand utterly guilty before God. Our nature is depraved. We have, we have no innate desire to, re, to, to, to be able to have the righteousness that only he can provide. How can this be? Uh, how can God do that and still be God? Here is the problem, Luther said, which needs God to solve it. On the cross, the Son of God uh, did indeed solve the problem. God loved us so much that he sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to live the life we could not live, to die the death that we deserve um, to die. Christ took the wrath we rightly deserve to graciously give us the righteousness that we cannot merit. And the last phrase, solely through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice Acts 16, 31. Believe or have faith in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Paul tells this to the Philippian jailer. Look at this one. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe or have faith in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul tells that to the church of Rome in Romans 10.9. Repent and believe, well, that means have faith in, the good news. And Jesus proclaims this in Mark 1, verse 15. Faith in Christ is the single and sufficient requirement for justification. All we can do and all we must do is trust completely in the work Jesus Christ 
has accomplished with his death, and then we are saved. Now, that is not to mean that uh, we have nothing to do. It means that Christ works in us. When we invite him in, he works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. See, this changes everything. When we turn to Christ in faith, our old sinful selves are completely burned away by his sacrifice. We die to ourselves and to our every attempt to earn God's favor according to our own merits. We're justified by faith alone, and we live by faith alone. Not a single corner of our lives is left untouched by this truth. To contextualize this, for Luther, let's think Luther right now. The context now for Luther of discovering this is that no longer would the Church of Rome stand as an intercessor and reconciler between man and God. That is something that happens with Jesus Christ, not a distant one who, who is far away, but one whom we invite in to our very lives to will and do of his good pleasure. No longer would the merits of saints need to be transferable to those who just couldn't cut the mustard. No longer would the purchase of indulgences mean anything for the salvation of humanity. This was a direct transaction with God. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 to 31. There we read, that's 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 31. But God chose foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us Catch that. Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. So Jesus is wisdom. He has, that is, he has become our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Isn't that a wonderful promise? In the preface of Luther's commentary on Romans, we find the statement that you have seen on the cover of the October issue of the Adventist Review. Quote, Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. This builds on what Pastor Andrea shared with us that last week with the sola gracia, by grace alone. Faith is a living, daring confidence in the grace of God, what God does to reach out for us. Now go to Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved 
through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one could boast. <laughs> this is great news. Now I want to move you, uh, Pastor Chad uh, shared with you earlier that my biggest problem with this sermon is that it was like, like taking a, uh, a hurricane and putting it in a teacup. Um, it, it, it just, <laughs> there was just too much. That the, and so I, wanted, I want to take you through two particular understandings, two particular paradigms that are going to help you and have helped me to understand what this faith is really. First, the Hebrew language is very complex in its nuances. They have a word for every tiny deviation of possible meaning. And so when we look at, uh, at uh, faith in the Old Testament, there are nine different words in the Hebrew language that are translated faith by the Greek translators of the Hebrew Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint. And so as they went through and they, they looked at, uh, at uh, the, the different shades of meaning, the foundation was, this is faith. But the nuances, catch the nuances. Faith that is consistent. Faith that is reliable. Faith that is continual. These are different words that are used in the Hebrew language. Uh, in my uh, theology classes, I, I, uh, I assault my students with the actual words. I won't do that with you. Faith that is certain. Faith that is verifiable. There is the, the Hebrew word aman, which means so be it. We use it today. Amen, we say. And we often misuse it. You know, we're off in la la land, we're not listening to what the preacher is saying, and, and suddenly we jump out with an amen, you know, and uh, Cain killed Abel, amen. It just does not, does not fit. Just understand that that word, amen, means so be it. And don't get distracted by just the fact that you're expected to do it, especially if you're in a church where um, people get excited about saying amen. Hebrew has very specific nuances, these, these nuances. But they're all translated into the Greek word. It has one root word, patho, and, uh, for, for this word faith. And in the Greek, that same word can be used as a noun, pistis, or as a verb, pistuo. 
So wherever you come in the Greek, when you're reading in Greek, you know that faith has a verb form that corresponds exactly with what it means. But the English language is so limited that faith is a noun and we don't have a verb form for the word faith. You can't say to faith something. It just doesn't work. So because we're so limited, we went to the German language and we chose a word there, Belieben. Belieben means to cherish, to love dearly, to hold close and dear. And that has become our word for believe. So when you read, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, what are you really saying? Have faith, see? in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. There, is, there should be no difference between faith and belief. And keep that in mind. Whenever you're reading through the Bible and it says believe, understand that that's just another form of the word faith. Faith is important. In Hebrews 11.6 we read, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The only direct definition that we have of faith, this very important commodity without which we can please we, cannot, we can't please God if we don't have faith. So, so it's, you know, what do we, what we, what do, we do? In Hebrews 11.1, 1, there is a direct, focused definition. Depending on your translation uh, that you have, and I went through a dozen different translations, and... This word is translated different ways. Um, faith is, pistis, equals, and then the, the Greek word is hypostasis, I'll get to that. But faith is being sure. Faith is the substance. Faith is the certainty. Faith is the assurance. Faith is the confirmation. Faith is the reality. Faith is the firm foundation. Faith is the sure confidence. Any translation that you might have has one of, uh, one of those of things hoped for. So which is it? <laughs> they all sound good, but what is it? And, you know, bear with me here. Uh, I find this really important. And even though we're getting into textual and some Greek language here, this hypostasis, faith equals hypostasis, has a very interesting history. 
That word hypostasis does not come from any philosophical or theological foundations. In the, in, uh, in the years before Christ, two, three centuries before Christ, this uh, hypostasis was what, uh, what was referred to when you take urine and put it in a bottle and you centrifuge it and the sediment that settles in the bottom is the hypostasis. If you have an area that has water and some mud that has been uh, collected in it, uh, after a while there's a sediment. It is the essence of what was there. There's a third historical, philological foundation for that word. It was found in papyri that were discovered among some scrolls in the Middle East. This papyrus was a, uh, it was called hypostasis, and it uh, they were, they were surprised. They looked at it and they said, huh. Oh. Title deeds of land purchases. In other words, if you own a car and you want to prove that you own it, you have your title of your car. You have the title for your home. You have, you have an evidentiary document that you own this property. So what does this mean to you? What does this mean to me? First of all, when I exercise faith, it is the firm foundation of things hoped for. The prosthesis which undergirds me. It can also mean that uh, that which, which settles the sediment of urine or blood, the sediment of, of in, in mud, the sediment, uh, the essence of what is in a particular fluid, the essence. And in the papyri, we find that faith is the ownership, the title deed of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The title deed. You see, this is important to you and to me because when we look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not enough to say, that's nice. It's only enough when we can say, that's mine. When we look at 28 fundamental beliefs and we look through and we examine them and we're just nurtured by that wealth of understanding of Scripture, it's not enough to say that's nice. It's only when you can say, that's mine. When you look at the promises of God on a daily basis, it's not enough to say, those are nice. 
It's only enough when we can say, that's mine. And because, and, and if we continue, it is this faith is the title deed of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18, it says, For we fix our eyes not what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. But what is, uh, what is unseen is eternal. Catch that. And maybe guiding us a little bit more on what it means for that which is unseen is eternal, we can look at Romans 1.20 where it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature uh, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So this eternal is God's invisible qualities, his eternal power. What an exciting understanding. You know, we're saved by grace, by God's grace, through faith in Jesus, and that sustains and ungirds the things hoped for, the faith that forms the essence of things hoped for, faith that is the title deed of things hoped for. Catch it, friend. Faith is the ownership papers of things hoped for. It is mine. I own it. Luther started a revolution of reformation. Let us continue that in our hearts. Let's bow our heads. Father, I'm grateful for your love, for your blessings, for the opportunities to serve you. We pray, Lord, that we will be willing to take what you offer us in your promises and claim them as our own. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.